Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, education is hard to disrupt. And as longtime fans know very well, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's good because education is so important and foundational. Not only to how well a given child will do later in life, but also because in the large developed nations, the educational system forms the basis of society itself. It provides us all with a shared set of experiences. So the fact that we don't change the rules every few years is, is a good thing. On the other hand, this lack of disruption leads to educational systems. That don't really meet the needs of today's students and today's societies, for that matter. So clearly, there must be a better way of doing things than what we're doing now. Well, today I'd like to introduce you to someone who's found a better way. Yoshito Hori founded Globus as a small business training school, and grew it into Japan's first independent and fully accredited business school offering MBAs. And then, Globus became Japan's most popular MBA program. Yoshito's strategy for innovation is fascinating. Unlike similar schools in the U.S., Globus does not compete on cost. In fact, the Globus MBA is more expensive than similar degree programs at Todai or Hitotsubashi. No, Globus is doing something unique, and something that is making a lot of people rethink. How university and postgraduate education is done in Japan, but you know, Yoshito tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here today with Yoshi Hori of Globus. So thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you very much as well. Globus has about seven thousand students per year. It It's one of it's the most popular MBA in Japan. It always does well in the national business school rankings here.、Mm-hmm. But what seems most unusual it's it's a truly international MBA program. So you have students both from Japan and overseas now, right? Yeah. What sort of ratio? Well,、um, we have English MBA program and Japanese MBA program. Japanese MBA program is a part time program. English MBA program we have part time, full time, and online. We have roughly about over 100 English MBA program students, and we have about 800 Japanese MBA program. Well, that's interesting. So you have more Japanese students, but it sounds like there's a lot more flexibility in the English language courses. That's right. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Well,、um, our vision is to become number one business school in Asia. In order to become number one business school, we need to have full-time English MBA program. But in case of Japanese, we don't need to have a full-time Japanese MBA program because not many people quit jobs to get MBA in Japan. And therefore, in Japanese side, we have Japanese MBA program in five locations with、uh, Mito and Shin Yokohama, like Yokohama Station, and、uh, for、uh, hub campuses, and also online. And most of Japanese students、uh, participate and enroll、uh, into MBA program as a part-time MBA program.、Okay. In case of English, you know, we need to have full-time MBA program. So there are quite a few、uh, students 
come from overseas. There are roughly about more than 50 different nationalities within Globus MBA. And more than 90% of full-time MBA program is non-Japanese. So it's a very truly international MBA program. And moving forward, do you think there will be more and more international students fueling the growth or more Japanese? We feel that there will be more and more uh, non-Japanese international MBA students coming in. The reason is that we have not been into English MBA programs until 2009. We have been around only for about eight or nine years, and we just started full-time English MBA program in 2012, and we have a lot more room to grow. MBA programs in the U.S. tend to be quite expensive, and, and Globus is about 4 million yen per year. And how does that compare with like uh, MBA programs at Waseda or Kale? Well, uh, Waseda and Kale are almost about the same. But difficulties in Japan is that we have national universities like Hitotsubashi and Tokyo University, which is roughly about one quarter of uh, tuition compared to a Globus. And they are highly reputed as well. So therefore, it's difficult for us to raise our tuition simply because we are dragged down by those uh, national good universities in Japan as for tuition. And are there tuitions so low just because of the government subsidies towards those universities? Yes, uh, 70% of those revenue for those national universities are taxpayers' money. So it's uh, highly uh, subsidized. It's mostly run by the taxpayers' money. Okay. Well, it does make it difficult to compete. Well, you know, we cannot raise our tuition higher, and uh, we have to appeal to our potential students that our, our quality of education is uh, two, three times or four times better than those who are run by taxpayers' money. You know, before we get too deep into the, the program and the school in Japan, there's, so you got a traditional MBA and you became an entrepreneur. So what percentage of your MBA students go on to become entrepreneurs? And, and what percentage would you say take the more traditional career path? I would say about roughly about 10% becoming entrepreneur. And 20% more are joining entrepreneur companies. Oh, and okay. then roughly about 20% will be changing jobs to, let's say, like consulting or other uh, foreign affiliated companies. I think roughly about half remain in their companies. And, and are those numbers pretty similar for both the Japanese students and the non-Japanese students? In case of non-Japanese students, it's, uh, it's difficult to compare because quite a few of them come from overseas to study here in Japan. And most of Japanese students you know, are living here in Japan, and therefore it's difficult to compare. Mm. But in case of uh, non-Japanese students who come to uh, Japan, some start their own companies here, and some change their jobs, and some go back to their home countries. So that, that 30% of Japanese Globus MBAs are either starting a new company or joining a startup company. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really high. It's quite high. Excellent. Well, listen, before we talk more about Globus, let's take a step back and talk about you. Okay. So you went to Harvard Business School. This was back in 1992 when you were graduating, and this was before the last internet bubble. 
What made you decide to start a new company rather than just, you know, join a consulting firm or go into a very high-paying job at a, a Japanese firm? I was sponsored by Sumitomo Corporation to get my MBA, and I feel uh, thankful for my sponsor company, Sumitomo, that I had never thought about changing my jobs. And I was planning to come back, and I did come back to Sumitomo. But I really wanted to start up my own companies, and I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So I came up with 30 or 40 business ideas, and I shortlisted into two, and I raised two business plans within Sumitomo Corporation for the new um, businesses to be done and executed by Sumitomo Corporation. But the, those two business plans were rejected by Sumitomo, and therefore I had to do either of them by myself, and I chose to do Globus idea. And I raised uh, capital from my friends, a small capital, only about $8,000. And I started Globus from scratch. But, but what, what changed your mind? There must have been some point. So you were on a great career track at, at Sumitomo, where they'd sent you to get your MBA. Was starting your own company something you always wanted to do since you were a boy? Or I never thought about becoming an entrepreneur uh, in my life until I went to Harvard. My father was a nuclear scientist, and uh, my grandpa was either a politician, and the other one was a, also an engineer scientist. So I always thought about becoming a scientist or, or, or a politician, but I decided to become more like a business person, so I, I joined Sumitomo Corporation. But when I got into MBA, I was quite shocked about the spirit within MBA that quite a few colleagues of mine wanted to become entrepreneurs. And I started to think about what is entrepreneurship and how you can start a company and how you can make it grow. So I measured uh, entrepreneurship in my second year. I took all the courses which have a, a name entrepreneurs attached, like entrepreneurship finance, entrepreneurship management, entrepreneurship organization and strategy. And I was quite curious about entrepreneurship and I felt that I could do it. You know, One speaker who came to campus he said to us, there's one thing different which will make the life uh, so much change. That is, uh, uh, there is a limit onto what you can do, but people tend to set their limit by themselves. They, they say, like, well, this is how much I can do, and you know, I can't do more. And uh, people tend to set the limit by him or herself. So the important thing is to you know, destroy the limit. Like, uh, there's no limit in your you know, potential. So people are just setting their own expectations way too low expectation possible. and also like they limit their own possibilities from that moment i decided to change my mindset that everything should be possible but even then i mean back in 1992 japan had a very very different opinion of startups and new companies than they do now mm. so even if you had a vision to create a new kind of university in japan you can't just go out and do it. So, I mean, how big were your first classes? How did you get that first group of people together? Well, when I started, you know, I had only 20 students. That time, I used my apartment as an office. <laughs> and uh, also, I used rented classroom for three hours for $200. And that time, there was no internet. So, uh, I sent out direct mails to my friends. And then we had 20 students who are taking one simple course of marketing. I was only by myself. 
And people thought that I was crazy because I went to Kyoto University, I got into Sumitomo Corporation, I got MBA from Harvard, and why do you starting out by yourself, <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, just giving out you know, your papers and some leaflets you know, to people? But you know, I said to all my friends, like, I have a dream. I think I can do it. You know, I believe in my potential. And, and back in 2006, the school became an official Globus University. And, and what's, what's the important difference between the, being a school and being a university in Japan? Being a school was from 1992 to 2006. And we could not issue any credits. We could not issue any uh, uh, degrees. And so we could not have, uh, we could not issue MBA. After 2006, we got license to issue MBA from the government of Japan. So we can say that we are a global university and we can give out MBA. Uh, it's, a, it's a big difference you know, that you know, has impact on to our students. Now, is Globus the first, first accredited university specifically for MBAs? We are one of the few in Japan which had been started out as MBA specific. There were a few others, but we were one of the few. And we were the only business school who has been started out like an entrepreneur. There are some you know, tycoon uh, who started out uh, like International ah. University of Japan, or Kenichi Omae-san started out some business school. But in case of Globus, you know, we are greenfield startup right. from scratch, from apartment as an office and rented classroom. And right now we are number one in Japan. And that had to be viewed as extremely disruptive by the existing universities, the existing educational system. So how did the leading MBA schools at the time, Keio and Wasada, how did they react to Globus MBA? Well, um, my sense is that Keio and Wasada didn't think of us as a major competitor from the beginning. We were just a startup and a business school. I imagine they had never thought that Globus would become their competitors because we don't have any brand, you know, we didn't have any credibility, we didn't have any government you know, official license, and uh, um, we are a totally different animal compared to uh, KO and Waseda. Therefore, I don't think they thought of us as a competitor. But in 2006, we became university, but still, I believe they didn't think us as a competitor. But that is almost the that is almost the perfect description of of the classic Clayton Christensen disruption. Maybe right. Yeah. Where where the incumbent players simply ignore and dismiss mm. the newcomer until it's too big to change. Mm. It's great and kind of amazing to see that happen. But when we look at like the Japanese education system overall, it seems that very little has changed since well, like the Meiji Restoration. Mm. It, it's. There's been reforms, and, and women are now allowed into all the universities, but it's still very much the same system as it has been for over 100 years. Why has education been so hard to not only disrupt, but to, to change and improve? Well, education requires strong brand, branding business. And there's a high entry barrier, simply because you need to have some licensed issue, some degrees, and uh, until now, you need to have some land, which will cost so much money. And they, it will take time uh, to build the uh, brand because you need to have good alumni 
and alumni will take 10 or 20 years to prove that their alumni are strong. Therefore, uh, the entry barrier to education is high anywhere you go. Mm. In the US or UK or Europe, number one is Harvard and Stanford. It hasn't changed. <coughs> There's no business school like us in the US which will become number one. Even in UK as well, it's uh, Oxford, you know, Cambridge, and maybe London Business School, but it's a London School of Economics. And there's no new startup business school which will become number one. So education, it's not Japan, it's education as a whole, it's a very difficult um, segment uh, to get in and to become number one, simply because there's a certain brand which has been established in case of Harvard more than 40, 400 years, in case of KOI, outside of 150 years. And there's so much alumni who are believing in their brand and carrying brand. And therefore, uh, it's not easy to entry into the educational field. So the business depends almost entirely on the brand and the reputation, rather. Well, I guess there really aren't any KPIs. There's no real market they're measured against. Mm. It's difficult. Even if you, be, you become number one in terms of scale, you're not really number one. You have to have a strong reputation. You have to be chosen by employers that their alumni are, are quite capable. So those reputation is hard to build. If you are to become number one in e-commerce, it's easy. You know, KPI is, is revenue. Right. And if you become number one in search engine, it's quite easy. You know, it's uh, the biggest you know, usage. However, in case of education, it's not easy to measure uh, number one. Therefore, the strategy to get in has to be a little bit different from actual businesses that you're in. That makes a lot of sense. Next year, you're going to be moving ahead even further. You've announced that you're having a fully accredited online MBA program. So it's, it's all live. It's not like pre-recorded videos. And in a blog you wrote, you mentioned that you really thought this was the future of education. Mm-hmm. So why? I've been always thinking about what the education will be looking like in 2030 or 2040. Education up until now has not been changed since the era of Socrates. You meet and you discuss and you use some kind of textbook. And that's education. However, with technology, education will be changed. When I realized that was when we started online MBA program using, because SPOC method, SPOC stands for small private online courses. MOOCs stands for Massive Open Online Courses. MOOCs was just the uh, library of uh, video data. SPOCs is interactive, real-time discussion base with only about 30 or 40 students, sure. so, which is just like a case method discussion. And we do a classroom with 30 or 40 students in a classroom. SPOC basis, you, know, you do, everybody is online. And anybody can be in the U.S., somebody can be in Italy, somebody can be in Japan or China. And then you hook into in the internet at the same time. We did that for one case, which is the same case as we did in the real class. The responses were are quite amazing. Most of the students thought that the experiences of learning is almost identical to you know, real classes. I was a professor teaching that course, and I I felt the same way. Wow, this is going to be 
future going to be looking like. So therefore, we started online Japanese MBA, online English MBA program, and now we have quite a few students enrolling into online MBA program from U.S. and also from Europe and from Asia. <clears throat> and that's just the beginning. We abolished all the paper, all the cases, everything were online now. All the communications being done online, and then in the future, we feel that.、Um, Everything will be done online. Let's say, like in case of music, there used to be LP, then it became CD. It was download, and nobody downloads you know, CD any longer. It's mostly、uh, streaming. Nobody buy it.、Uh, so, in case of the, in case of the same as education, I think education will become more like streaming. I want to I want to push back on that a little bit because I think it's, I think it's true. We certainly can provide maybe even a superior. Educational experience is a superior teaching experience online rather than a classroom base. But even like thinking back to your time at Harvard, how much of the value you got out of the school was was information being poured into your brain, and and how much of the value was the、uh, informal interactions and the the friendships and and like bouncing things around. Are you worried that that, you know, that we'll be missing that when we move online? Well, it's more like education is going to be deconstructed. You know, like、uh, some part of education can be done online, some part of it will not be done online. That's like going out for drinks cannot be done online. Some kind of like chatting in the classroom cannot be done online. However, more and more things are being done online. Let's say after the class of online courses. It's amazing that people go out for drinking in front of the display. They say cheers. <laughs> really? They, they, they really? Do, they do chat. They do chat after the class. Well, this class was doing this, and what do you think? And there was actual drinking going on online. Where actual chatting is going on online, and then sometimes they get together offline, and then the friendship become much deeper because they've been knowing each other for a long time online, and they get once they become offline. They meet each other. The friendship becomes better. You know, there, there are quite a few people are getting married, meeting up in, with online. The experiences of online are becoming more and more taking over the experiences of real classes. That's true. It might be a, a generational thing as well.、Mm. So younger people are more used to interacting and more comfortable interacting meaningfully online. But I can't help but wonder that if if Sumitomo had sent you to an online MBA,、mm. if You would have not have chatted as much and drank as much and talked as much with your fellow students and decided to become an entrepreneur. Well, it's difficult to say. <clears throat> it's difficult to say that you know more and more online students will be getting more experiences as well. If I were taking online,、uh, being sponsored by Sumitomo, I must have different ex- experiences, and that experiences will not be judged worse or better. It's, it's totally different ex- experiences, and new experiences will emerge out of the online education, which could not be experienced in real classes. If you look at sort of the the range, what kind of things do you think are really well suited to be taught online, and what kinds of things do you think are harder to teach online? Or, you know, I'm in the camp that most of things will be taught online. Almost all the classes. That we provide in real classes 
of English and Japanese MBA are being taught online. And we always judge by the feedback from students as to whether it was right or not, one to five scale. So far, we didn't find any issues teaching online. And what is going on? Now we are investing more onto AI as well. We call it Globus AI Learning. We call it Gale. In the future, you know, AI will be the one to be teaching students as well. That's what we are thinking of. And then using online, automatically all the data being collected. Who spoke and how many you know, like airtime and uh, whether or not which was judged by professors, what score. And all the data being collected online. That is going to be able to create totally different experiences. You know, I, I was about to say that, that things like chemistry lab or, or physics lab would have to be done mm. in person, but technically you could use VR mm. to simulate mm. undergra- certainly undergraduate physics and chemistry yeah. labs. Mm. Huh. Mm. So with lifetime employment, mm. a thing of the past, unless you're working for the government, do you think this is going to force education to change? Do you think that... We're going to see more mid-career, peop- mid-career Japanese start taking courses and getting engaged in furthering their education? One thing we are changing the way MBA is being taught. I mentioned about delivery, which is uh, online. The second thing is that uh, we are changing the contents of what should be taught in MBA. The technology is changing the way we do businesses. Amazon came in. Facebook came in, Google, and all of them were not existing about 20 years ago. Uber did not happen, and Airbnb. Technology is enabling new businesses, at the same time threatening the incumbent. Therefore, uh, all the businesses are being affected by technology. That means that business leaders have to change, and they have to be equipped with new skills. We call it technobate. Technology and innovate, and we use it in the same word. What we are teaching right now is AI and also um, social media communication. We are teaching leaders to program coding and algorithms and system architecture, and uh, also we are teaching leaders to have design as well. So what is going on is that the changes of the technology is so rapid that uh, mid-career, have to learn again, and even senior leaders have to learn again. Therefore, I think the educational contents are going to be changed drastically at the same time. Lifelong learning is going to be things that people have to be always studying Mm. to keep up. Yeah, then online education is only going to become more and more important as we move forward. Online education as well as the, uh, the needs of education are going to be more and more important. I've got two more quick questions to ask you. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about Japan in general. Mm-hmm. You've been outspoken and positive about startups and innovation in Japan for a very long time. You've invested in dozens of companies. You're a successful entrepreneur yourself. So looking back over the last 20 years, what are the most important changes that you've seen in Japan? When I started, I was the first MBA holder who became an entrepreneur. And then Mikitani of Rakuten started. DNA of Tomoko Namba started. And then there quite a few jumped in. And we created uh, the ecosystem. 
there is no single point that has contributed to this ecosystem. It's more and more best and brightest are coming into the entrepreneur field and they are becoming as a role model mm. and they are buying professional basketball teams, professional baseball teams and they are becoming visible in societies and they are being respected and they are educating uh, new leaders within their organization and there is a spirit of entrepreneurship and that has created this ecosystem. So, I guess it goes back to what you were saying before, how, how people set their own limitations. They believe their own limitations are too small, but when there's, they can see all these role models, they realize that those limitations are false and they can do it too and they yeah. try. That's right. So it's been mainly role models. Role model and uh, also um, first penguins, whoever jumping first. You know, those people are a core of ecosystem and there are quite a few of them. Okay. Listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. That is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the way people think about risk, the legal system, the educational system, anything at all, to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? I think most of the regulation has been changed. And I give a good credit to Prime Minister Abe for uh, fostering entrepreneurial ecosystem and uh, uh, spirit as well. Uh, Prime Minister Abe has started a venture award. The Prime Minister is giving a vote to successful entrepreneurs. We have more capital coming in, more venture capital, more entrepreneurs, and more NGOs coming up. If you are to narrow it down to entrepreneurship, I think most of the things have been done already. Okay. Well, let's, let's broaden it then to improve Japan. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to necessarily be startups and innovation, but just to make things better, what would you change? I think the biggest issue of Japan is a, a declining birth rate. Because a declining birth rate means declining population. And declining population right now has created the situation that we have lack of labor. Lack of labor is becoming the biggest bottleneck of Japanese economy. So one thing I would change is uh, I would do every policy possible to facilitate more birth to happen in Japan. One example would be that the biggest uh, difference is if you compare it to France and Japan, the birth rate of those who are married are not so much different. It's almost the same. But the biggest difference comes from those who are not married. Here in Japan, not many people have become single mothers, single fathers. It's very hard to be a single mother in Japan. That's right. And so we have to change the mindset of Japanese people that even though he or she may not be married, should have be able to give birth and become father or mother. And if that happens, like if we have more single mothers and single fathers, I think birth rates will come up. And, and then people will be happy mother, happy father, you know, even though he or she may not find a good you know, partner to marry with. And that kind of diverse you know, lifestyle, I think, is going to be important. Yeah, that's a part of a trend that being accepting of more diverse lifestyles yeah. is, is good in so many ways. But I hadn't really thought of that, but that's a really important one. Mm. 
just having society as a whole accept the fact that it's okay for someone to be a single mother or a single father. I think it's good. If that will be able to make the society to be more wealthy in a psychological way. Do you see that changing? I think it's changing. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Thinking back of like over the last 15 years or so, I yeah. think it's, it's starting to change. There's, there's further to go. There are like a famous ice skating athlete who gave birth being a single mother. And that kind of, you know, more and more news is coming up, will change. Role models. Role models. It's all about role models. Yeah, so much important. And we have to pay respect. And we have to appreciate those people who do it. And we have to support them. And that kind of society, I think, we need to build to make the birth rate become higher. That's fantastic. Well, Yoshi, thank you so much for sitting thank down with much. me. I really appreciate it. And we're back. A lot of edtech startups talk about disrupting education using a combination of standardized curriculum and online tools. Globus is one of the few that's actually doing it, and doing it at scale. The university system in Japan needs fixing. And with the exception of tenured faculty, not too many people disagree with that. Globus offering part-time and weekend degree programs is something most Japanese universities would never even consider. But Globus and their graduates are doing quite well with them. Their move to fully accredited online courses will be an even bigger departure from Japanese norms, and one that I'm a bit skeptical of. It just seems to me that so much of effective instruction involves real face-to-face interaction with professors and, more importantly, with other students. But you know, maybe it's a generational thing. Globus's early pilots resulted in students having after-class drinking sessions in front of their monitors. So yeah, Maybe Generation Z simply is more comfortable living their lives online and is completely cool with this. We'll have to wait and let the results speak for themselves. But do you know what I found most impressive? And the most inspiring fact of this interview? At least for me. The fact that 30% of the Japanese Globus MBA graduates go on to either start a startup or join a startup. I couldn't find these numbers for other Japanese MBA programs, but even the startup education programs I run don't usually end up with 30% of the students starting or joining startups. So I imagine the numbers from the business schools are significantly lower. Okay, so that's great for the startup community, and that makes me happy. But this is also great for Globus. Because of Yoshito's entrepreneurial background and the shift towards startups going on in Japan today, Globus has a real chance to become known as the best university in which to learn how to run a startup. The education system as a whole is very hard to disrupt, but Globus is well on its way to disrupting how MBAs are earned and, more importantly, how they're used. If you've got an experience with MBAs or online education, Yoshito and I would love to hear from you. 
So come by DisruptingJapan.com slash show119 and tell us about it. When you get to the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Yoshito and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, you might have heard, Disrupting Japan is looking for a social media intern. The fact is that between making this podcast, working with TEPCO, writing for Forbes, and teaching at NYU here in Japan, I'm stretched pretty thin, and I need some help taking things to the next level. So you'll help us make a greater impact in Japan and with Japanese startups, and you'll get to connect with some of the most amazing people in Japan and help build the skills you'll need to grow your own startup one day. Native or near-native Japanese fluency is a must here. So if that sounds like a challenge you'd be up for, send me an email at tim at disruptingjapan.com and we'll talk about it. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.